Father, we praise you for your grace toward us. We thank you for your grace in the gospel of our Lord Jesus, that in him we are saved and and in him we live. We thank you, Father, for the hope that we have, not that wavering kind of hope, not the uncertain, but the confident assurance of what we have in Christ. And I pray, my Father, that all of that confident assurance that we have in Christ would be Bill's right now in this hour. Lord, please sustain his heart. May he look forward with nothing but faith and joy. Father, I pray that uh, you would give him relief in this hour. We know, Father, that eventually the the physical, uh, bodily help and relief is going to come to an end for him. But... um, we still ask for it. We, we still ask, Lord, that you would uh, give this to him in this hour. And please be with his family, Lord. Give them physical stamina. Also give them that, that spiritual and emotional stamina. May they draw from you and uh, draw also from one another. <clears throat> Father, um, as we look into your word <clears throat> and remind ourselves of your precious promises in the Lord. I pray that all of our hearts would be encouraged. Father, uh, you know my, my need, and you, you know all of our need. Um, you know how far I fall short. I pray that there would be no aimless rambling today. I, I pray, Father, that I would be gripped by the gospel and filled with your Holy Spirit to preach your word and power to your people. And I pray, Father, that we would have all the, the comfort and all the conviction that you mean for us to have. <clears throat> Give to us your spirit and pour out on us <clears throat> your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, I was originally planning on uh, preaching from Luke's gospel this morning, but um, I, I did a, quite a bit of studying, I felt like, but I didn't have the energies for it. I didn't think it was appropriate for the time necessarily, and um, the Lord directed my attention to this passage. So I really don't know exactly what I'm going to say this morning. Um, that's why I prayed that it wouldn't be aimless rambling. I know that oftentimes when I don't have notes in front of me, sometimes I can be talking to Ryan at length about different things, and uh, this seems to happen with him especially. I don't know why. <laughs> but finally, I'll just say, you know what? I'm just blabbing and I walk away. <laughs> so, uh, I don't want it to be that. And so, uh, pray for me and pray that this message would do all of us good. But what we're going to do is different this morning because I want to start by reading the letter of First Thessalonians, all five chapters. And I read it earlier aloud and it took about 12, 13 minutes. So it's not going to take us long. But as we go through this, this is a few things that I want you to pay attention for. First of all, I want you to see that Paul consistently in implied ways reminds the Thessalonian believers that they're going to face suffering in the Christian life and they're going to face affliction. And perhaps, I'll give you a little more background in a little bit, Perhaps some of them were thinking that the suffering that they were going through and in particular the deaths that had been 
suffered in their church family were signs of God's disfavor. Um, perhaps the, the struggle there was signs that some of them had bought into some kind of prosperity gospel or something. So Paul corrects that. Also, another theme to pay attention for is that the Apostle Paul continues over and over again to tell this church family how much he loves them and how he is longing for them and wants to see them so badly. And Ryan already read the portion of Scripture that we're going to be concentrating on, verses 13 to 18 in chapter 4. And and so, um give you a little more detail here. The, the Thessalonian believers in struggling over suffering and death were, were worried about their loved ones. They were worried about these who had deceased perhaps missing out on the glory of the second coming or being at some kind of disadvantage or, you know, um, that they were in the back rather than first class when it came to the second coming. And so... Uh, That kind of Paul's theme of, I want to see you, I want to see you, I want to see you, comes to a natural climax in the letter where he talks about being together with our loved ones at the coming of Christ, even though there are many who have already died. So he is saying, we will see one another. We will be together. And then the third thing that I want you to pay attention to is that constant coming back to Jesus' second coming. And we're going to find it at the end of chapter 1, at the end of chapter 2, the end of chapter 3, the end of chapter 4, and the end of chapter 5. Every chapter concludes with the hope of Jesus' second coming. All right? Here, the wor- and by the way, please have a Bible open in front of you, because if you don't, I don't think you'll be able to keep attention. You'll struggle anyway. As we go through this, I think you'll struggle and you'll have to bring yourself back, perhaps. There's a pew Bible in front of you if you didn't bring yours. First Thessalonians. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, Silvanus, which is a name for Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction." You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. If I had to pick a classic statement that would summarize conversion in the New Testament, this would be it. 
how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. And let me say something quick, uh, quickly here. I'll insert this. That um, I'll give you a little more background right now. You will find the record of Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 16, you recall Paul went to the city of Philippi. He had been dogged there by um, a fortune-telling, demon-possessed girl that was oppressing, was interrupting the message. And after Paul delivered that girl from her demonic possession, the, the city attacked him and he was put into prison with Silas and uh, they were beaten um, and there was the earthquake. You remember the Philippian jailer was converted and so on and that's how the Philippian church got its start. After that, Paul went to Thessalonica and he taught in the Thessalonian synagogue for a few weeks until the Jews that were present there got very jealous and attacked them. And you know that phrase um, that the Paul and his missionary team had turned the world upside down? That's where that had come from. The, Philippi, uh, the Thessalonian Jews said, um, these people have turned the world upside down, and that was their accusation. And then Paul and his team were forced to leave town again, just after about a month of service in Thessalonica. So the Thessalonian church was left in a predicament. And over time, with their affliction increasing and Paul not returning, they began to think that Paul had just left them. He had perhaps abandoned them and didn't really care for their physical and spiritual well-being. And that's why Paul keeps coming back to, you remember what we did, and you remember our love and how we poured our lives into you. So he keeps on telling them, I long to see you. I want to be with you. I want to minister to you. I love you. Okay, that gives you some background to understand what he means here. Let's continue on. For you yourselves, brothers, you know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, earlier he had compared his ministry to a nursing mother, now, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you 
and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So all, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope? or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly day and night that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. 
Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning... Let me stop here again, just before we reach our concentration passage. I mentioned to you earlier how Paul loved this church, and he keeps saying it over and over again, and how he longed to see them. Now he also affirms their love, their love for one another. And it's in that context of their love for one another, you can understand their grief as they they thought that the people, the brothers and sisters that they had loved who had died were now at a disadvantage when Jesus came. So they have, there's two reasons why they're struggling for hope. One, they're not informed. They're ignorant. And that needs to change. But the second reason that they're struggling is because they love each other so much. And that's not to change except to grow. Let's continue. Verse 9 of chapter 4. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers for that day to dis- to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. 
be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This, this passage is a precious one to us. And it's, I think, I hope that it's a familiar passage to you. And I want it really to settle in your heart. And I want you to be able to remind yourself of this truth and to remind your church family of this truth so that we don't grieve as others do who don't have the hope that we have. The Thessalonians were grieving somewhat like the world was grieving. One, it was because of their great love for their church family, but also they had a degree of ignorance about the second coming of Jesus and the place of their deceased brothers and sisters in that second coming. So let's, uh, let's come into this passage and we'll concentrate it on just for a few minutes, not for a long time together. But you notice right away, he doesn't want them to be ignorant about those who have died. He knows they're going to grieve. Church family, we're going to grieve but not like the world that doesn't have hope. So for let's look at verse 14 again. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Notice where the Apostle Paul goes for hope for the future. He goes to the past. He goes to what Jesus has accomplished. You see, the fact of the past necessitates hope for the future. And belief of what Jesus has done in the past means this hope for us in the present and the hope for the future. Because we are tied to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're bound to Him. We're united to Christ. This doctrine is so important. I know it's neglected so much, but if you want to understand the Christian life, and if you want your hope to surge, then know what it means to be united to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible uses the phrase, in Christ. There is such a tie and such a closeness and a oneness that it says we are in Him. And it's not talking spatially. It's not talking about our location physically, but such is our union with Him that the best phrase is that we are in Him. And it means that His righteousness, His life is my life. His suffering is my suffering. That means it's counted to me. It's credited as mine. 
His death is our death. The death He died to sin is our death. His burial, I'm talking Romans 6 here, His burial is ours. And His resurrection is our resurrection. Therefore, if those things are true concerning His past work, what does it mean for His future? It means that in His return, we are going to be tied to Him. His return is our return. And His reward, these things are all conveniently starting with R. His his return is our return and His reward is our reward and His reign over all things is our reign. We will reign with Him. We will be glorified with Him. All of these ification terms that we're always using, justification and sanctification and glorification, all of that, that's the Christian life. All of that is ours because we are bound to Christ. We are united to Him. So what does this mean for the future? Exactly what Paul says, since Jesus died and rose again. And before I forget, I'll also uh, look, look at what he says at the end of verse 16. He says, and the dead in Christ. What does he mean, dead in Christ? He means that nothing separates us from Jesus. Nothing, not even death, separates us from Christ. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Now, that's in general. We belong to Jesus for His past work and for the future. So let's get into particulars. He and he, he comes out very bold and he want, comes out very strong because he wants the people of God completely and utterly convinced. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. This is not the opinion of men. This is not just some fancy, imaginative theory, whatever. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Meaning that those who have died, who are yet in Christ, will be at no disadvantage. They're not going to be in the back. They're not going to be flying coach when it comes to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. We who are alive, who are left. And notice there that Paul here, and this is one of his very early writings, at this point in Paul's life, he is assuming that he is going to be alive when Jesus comes. And that's why he talks this way. We who are alive, who are left. And, and that's not unusual by no means. And by the way, in 15, 20 years, Paul's thinking on that is not going to be the same. He's actually, you know, when he's in jail in Rome, and writing in Philippians, he says, I might die. I might live. But for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So he's not talking anymore about, I'm going to be, I think I'm going to be alive when Jesus, and he's not being a dog, dogmatic here. He's not being deceived or anything like that. But he has that hope and that natural assumption that every generation of believers has had that we're going to be the generation who is yet alive when Jesus comes. 
That's the way Paul is thinking. And it's not wrong. It's right for us to think that way. So he goes on, he says, we're not going to precede those who have fallen asleep. And in verse 16, he says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. What a spectacle this is going to be. Talk about a joyful noise. Earlier, uh, Gary in our Sunday school class in the fellowship hall was talking about um, the still small voice, the, the low whisper of the Lord and how often throughout time and uh, man, I, I really felt the, um, the particulars of that passage in First Kings and Elijah's experience in our church. Because we're not all about, to use another pastor's phrase, we're not all about the whiz-bang. And we're not all about the, the smoke and the lights and the flash and all of that. We're simple and we're centered on the Word. And we're not all about the massive programs that will finally be the, the silver bullet to transform all of things and bring down the kingdom. That's not what we are. That's, that's not how we live um, because we have that faith in the Word of God that through His Word, God will speak. And through His Word, we live. So this is all we need. And so we sing it and we pray it and we teach it. And by the grace of God, we live it. But having said that, you know how God often works through history, through the the low, the the subtle, the quiet. It's not always going to be that way. <laughs> One day there will be the whiz bang, but it's not going to be uh, so cheap as that. It's going to be awesome. I, I find it so sad, let me say this as well, that certain segments of the evangelical church have taken this passage and turned it into a spectacle that the Lord did not attend. Imagining, you know, what it's going to be with crashing cars and crashing planes and you know, sudden explosion and clothes left. The Lord did not imagine that kind of fanciful speculation from this passage. He meant simply for the people to go on with hope in their hearts, even in great affliction, knowing that our end, the end of this age, will be glorious. So the Lord will come. Jesus will come and will be with a cry of command. He will issue His call to His church. It will be with the voice of an archangel, the only archangel named for us in the hierarchy of angels that would is called an archangel is the angel Michael in the book of Jude. And also he's mentioned in the book of Daniel. And with the sound of the trumpet of God, and you find that, um, the sound of God's trumpet accompanying the coming of Jesus and the call to the church also in Matthew chapter 
24 and in 1 Corinthians 15. So what a, what a spectacle. And here it is at the end of verse 16, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise. If their grave has been freshly dug, the dead in Christ will rise first. If they were lost at sea thousands of years ago, the dead in Christ will rise. If they were a victim on 9-11, when those planes crashed and there was nothing of them left found, the dead in Christ will rise. No matter what, the dead in Christ will rise. This is the power of our God. This is the power of God in the resurrection of Jesus that as it was for Him, so it will be for us. What a foretaste of deliverance that we have in the resurrection of Jesus. As it was for Him, so it will be for us. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then, verse 17, we who are alive who are left at that time, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And this is where we get our doctrine of the rapture of the church. Rapture just being the Latin word for this Greek that is here behind the English, meaning caught up or seized. Those who are alive at the time will be caught up, raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And that those clouds, see, we're always, it's easy for us to be misled here in our uh, preconceived notions of, uh, you know, floating, um, uh, the words aren't coming to mind, but we, we, we think of like these whimsical spirits and halos and floating and harps and all of this stuff that's not earthly, it's not real. But at the same time, we, we imagine these clouds that are, bouncy or clouds that you know we'll have to pass through and then up drenched soaked or something like that when we're talking about the glory cloud of scripture the the cloud that accompanied God's descent on Mount Sinai and the the cloud that was promised to accompany the one like the son of man who came to the ancient of days in the book of Daniel in chapter 7 and the cloud that came upon the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration from which God spoke, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the cloud into which Jesus ascended at His ascension after He had been raised. All of that. It's the same thing we're talking about. This is the glory cloud. And we will be caught up into it. And so, the Bible says, we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. A question often arises, will we know one another? Are we going to recognize each other? Are we going to be able to have an Alds Chapel reunion and get to hang out and catch up? And those who went before us perhaps show us their, their favorite spots, you know, that kind of thing. Will it, will it be? Will we know one another? I think that we can answer in the affirmative just simply from this book, Because for one, Paul says, comfort each other. And what comfort would there be if we wouldn't know each other? 
what comfort would there be in being together if we are all strangers to one another? But also, remember, Paul keeps saying, I long to see you. I want to be with you. That's such a big part of this book. Being together as the family of God, where we can have renewed fellowship and, and ministry together. So again, again, this is all coming to a climax in these verses where Paul says we're going to be together. We want to see each other. We want to reunite. And that is what it's going to be in the second coming of Jesus. So I say the notion that we might be strangers to each other is foreign to the Bible completely and a little bit silly. That's what we're going to have. I, I think about all of those that we have lost over the years at All's Chapel. And you, a lot of you, have been here so much longer than I have. And I, I've preached a lot of funerals over this time. And I, so I'm thinking also about how many you have seen go. And you could look around this room and see, you know, where they sat and you, you fill in all of the spots that they have left behind, left open. And the truth of the word of God is that those who've gone before us are at no disadvantage whatsoever. They are presently with Christ. And when Jesus comes, He is bringing their soul, their spirit with Him. And their body, which is an essential part of them, will be gloriously transformed like Jesus' glorious body. And they will be those whole persons that God means His people to be. The soul and the spirit and the body are all good. When the person dies, it's not just a shell. It's not, oh, that's not them. This is an important part of them. And that body, that body in that casket is in Christ. It's in Christ. And He will raise it up gloriously. But that awesomeness is not, it's for all of us at once. What a moment of salvation. Here is when our salvation is final and it's complete. It's the resurrection and the rapture of those who are alive and remain at the coming of Christ. What a hope we have. What a hope. Don't put your hope on anything in this earth. Younger generation that still feels immortal, feels so far off and even in a way impossible, look beyond this world to the resurrection, to the rapture of the living in Christ. Don't lay up your treasures here, but in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's encourage one another with the hope that God gives to us in our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sure promises of God. Lord, we know that all is, all is sure All is true. Not a promise will fall to the ground. Our hope will not be put to shame because Jesus has died and Jesus has already risen. He has risen conquering the grave and is coming back in victory. So because of that empty tomb, because of Jesus' presence at your right hand, Because of these promises, we are confident and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
And we pray again, Father, that we pray for Bill's heart and his mind, his spiritual strength. We pray that he would not be weakened, but still, even in this very moment, renewed in the inner person as he focuses, Lord, not on the things that are transient, but the things that are eternal. We know that this, as Paul said, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. And may that hope sustain our dear brother in this time and sustain his family and our church. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.